and welcome back to Foss Backstage. This is Richard Litauer here with the Sustained Podcast Room, having a good time in now moderately cloudy, possibly just sunsetty Berlin. <laughs> and I'm here with a guest who I've had on the Sustained Podcast before, the Sustained Open Source Design Podcast, which if you haven't listened to it yet, you totally should if you like design stuff. Smira, I believe her last name was... Goel. Goel, exactly. Yes. Smira, it's great to have you on. <laughs> now, when I last talked to you, you were a student who was really interested in open source. Yep. I think you had done an outreachy. Yep. And you were really interested in talking about that. I asked you way too many questions about language stuff because I'm yep. a particular language nerd. Don't know why. Just always have been. But since then, you've gone on to do something else with your time. Tell me about mm -hmm. what you're doing now. Right. So last we talked, I think I just finished my outreachy internship. Since then, I have been an outreachy mentor. Amazing. Yeah, I am currently doing it for the second time. Cool. I am also the mentor project rep for Fedora, the community that I interned at. Wow. Yeah. So a lot has happened. So tell me what a mentor project rep does. So I'm in charge of looking after Fedora's participation in different mentorship programs. Cool. So like Outreachy, GSOC, and any other mentorship programs or summer internship programs that we can participate in. That sounds like a paid position. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> oh, okay, cool. But you do have a job, right? Yes. What's your job is? Yes. So I am a product designer, Yep. which is just fancy speak for designing an app or a website or whatever they tell me to do. Cool. Yeah. So it ranges from light decks yep. to PowerPoint presentations for internal communication. Those are the same things. Oh, the slide decks are just like for external partners. Got for it. Okay, cool. Like, you yeah. know, high stick. Yeah. Oh, these are supposed to go out to the investors. And yeah. then internal ones are, what What did you do this week? And then it's just like an internal review with the team members. And then it's the app, the website, and basically anything, anything design related that comes up. That's pretty cool. And this is a startup, right? Yeah. What's the engineering team? How large is it? Hmm. Good question. Four, four people? Four I mean, people? Cool. I mean, we have three sub-teams, so two each. So I think six people, yeah. Amazing. I, yeah, I work with four of them. And that's here in Germany? Yeah, in Berlin. That's super cool. Nice. Congrats. Super cool. Do they do any open source? Yeah. Semi. Like our uh, SDK is open source. Cool. The design, unfortunately, isn't. But that's how I got into... That's how I got the job, actually, because this was an open source company and it was listed on uh, an open source design like the job board. Oh, cool. And that's Great. how I got it. Excellent. Yeah. I'm glad open source design is able to get people jobs. That's the best. Yeah. And you're like our last podcast also because I mentioned it during my interview and then they listened to it. It's it's on my uh, portfolio also just to give me that like street cred. Street cred. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> I'm glad. That's, that's what we do here. Give people street cred. <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's really cool. I'm really happy that you're able to do that. I'm glad you're able to work in a place that has some open source offerings and able to continue to work in your design chops as you wanted to do. So that's amazing. Because we're here talking about software sustainability, mm -hmm. part of the sustainability cycle is getting people jobs who need them and getting them jobs in areas which is their profession, which they're very good at. So that's excellent. Mm -hmm. I am very curious, however, about the stuff we started the conversation about, which was mentoring more mentors and mentoring the mentees, I guess. Yeah. All the mentee stuff. So your job isn't to mentor all the outreachy people, but it's to mentor the mentors of outreachy to help them be good mentors. Is that correct? 
technically it's to recruit like there are two aspects to it right it's to recruit or participate in more internship programs and that cool. also involves get onboarding more mentors excellent and like which is not easy usually because a lot of people feel that they cannot be mentors yep yeah they they are very good at what they do but they've just not thought about mentoring or mm. maybe passing on that knowledge which is super important because that directly affects sustainability of any open source project mm. right because if that person passes on their knowledge to someone else that's how we ensure sustainability and longevity longevity of the project so part of it is also talking to contributors and getting them to mentor people sometimes bribing them with <laughs> <laughs> what with food. <laughs> oh, good. Excellent. Nice. That's really fun. That's cool. When you talk about mentoring being a linchpin of sustainability for projects, what would you say if I were to be the devil's advocate and point out that mentoring a single person or mentoring multiple people is keeping the knowledge outside of the hand of contributors who are not being mentored? But I would say that everyone has that opportunity to be mentored, right? The knowledge is out there. Right. At least that's the aim. You have everything out in the open. Mentoring is supposed to accelerate the intake of that knowledge because sometimes you you can have like the best documentation in the world and all the resources to onboard beginners, but you just need someone to guide you through that process sometimes. Right. Awesome. Yeah. So that is obviously a shortcoming. right because we don't have as many mentors as we have probable mentees hmm. or um we don't have as many resources a lot of these internship programs are funded for the interns right that puts a limit on how many interns or mentees we can recruit hmm. so obviously i would agree with you there that it is a shortcoming but what i how i see it is that if one person mentors two mentees and then those two mentees mentor two mentees each and then you know soon we're all mentors which is great that's yeah. the point it's the best pyramid scheme excellent so you work at or volunteer for fedora yes. which is both a distribution and a part of red hat mm-hmm. which is a company that helps sell fedora and help people manage it but it's also an open source project so mm-hmm. people can get involved if they want to do it faster they can go through by paying or they can just use the open source project as it is yep. excellent okay proof <laughs> it always takes me a lot of effort and it's not connected to apache no got it cool thank you apache has a red feather i always get very confused when we talk about fedora's amount of mentorship you mentioned outreach you mm-hmm. mentioned gsoc google yeah. summer of code what other mentorship projects are there so we used to do google code and also up until a few years ago cool. and last year we also did hacktoberfest cool. but we also so hacktoberfest is more of a i would say contributor initiated program right you, that, yeah. there's no official mentorship as such or any push for mentorship right but we tried to put that angle on Hacktoberfest where we talk to people who are already contributing in the community to help other people or new contributors like do some sort of indirect mentorship hmm. and not through like not necessarily through like a couple of months but just like a couple of issues maybe yeah Hacktoberfest is now opt in not opt out yeah. correct Yeah. So I've stopped getting all the spam pull requests, which is excellent. 
but it means that it's somewhat smaller. So you're able to actually effectively mentor people yeah. because you're able to say, oh, this project has opted in. So if you're going to submit a PR, then you should talk to this mentor first. Yeah. Is that how that works? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And plus, I feel like it also increases visibility, right? Because just having that Hacktoberfest stack, right? You are exposed to a lot more contributors who may, who may be in the open source community, but may not necessarily be involved in Fedora. Right. So they may see a cool new project and they're like, hmm, you know what, I, that sounds good. Or maybe that area sounds like something I, I would like to explore. I know that mentorship has like a direct correlation between participation by minorities and women and other underrepresented groups in open source. <laughs> I don't know much more than that. So I'm curious about your thoughts on that in general. <laughs> I, I, will, I think I'm a good person to talk about this being that I'm a woman of color in tech, right? And I started like my journey in open source because of one of these programs that promote participation of underrepresented communities, which is cool. outreachy, yeah. right? And that's that's why I also decided to become a mentor because I know if it weren't for that program, I probably wouldn't have the, had the opportunity or the resources to be an open source contributor, hmm. right? A lot of minorities if we talk about it from a financial point of view, it's hard to give time and resources to something you may not be getting paid for, hmm. right? There's always that argument, why should I do this if I'm not getting paid for it, Yeah, right? But having paid mentorship programs or even like any sort of resources that help you get started, that pushes you into that open source circle and then then you become like a contributor on your own. That's what happened with me. I started as a paid intern and since then I've been contributing, not paid obviously, hmm. uh, for three years now. Hmm. And now I've like learned to look beyond the fiscal aspect of it and see how like contributing to open source has upskilled me so much. And I've, I attribute all the opportunities I've gotten in my professional career to open source. And that's why I also want to give back to the community, why I mentor now, because I want to onboard more people like me, more minorities like me, who have not probably not heard of open source or open source design in general, and who I know will benefit from this opportunity. So when you're helping mentor the mentors and helping onboard new mentors, are you looking to onboard more mentors from underrepresented groups or do you not take that into account? Because ideally, overrepresented groups should also be mentoring yeah. in order to have a change. Yeah, I think when we are onboarding mentors, we don't necessarily, we push for minorities, but we don't focus on them like or we don't reserve it for them. Like, like this is just for minorities because yeah. obviously men. We need more mentors. We need as many mentors as we can get. So I think there is a push that is needed. So I started mentoring because my mentor pushed me. Hmm. I never thought of mentoring, right? And she was like, you know what? We should mentor together. We should go mentor. And I think you would be good for it. And hmm. I remember I'm like, how can I mentor someone? I need a mentor myself. <laughs> I, I don't think I'm the right person. And I feel like that leads us into discussions of imposter syndrome, especially in minority communities. Yep. And since then I have mentored and it's not a big deal. Like it's not something that I felt like I needed any special skills for. I was good at it, if I do say so myself. 
And I don't think I would have been here if not for my mentor mm. who pushed for my participation. So I think there's an extra effort that is needed mm. to bring more minorities into mentorship. It also, I think, makes further mentees feel comfortable. Like if I, if I, I see a woman just like me, a woman of color in a leadership position or someone or like a higher position, I would, I would believe that I can also be at that position. Hmm. I have a difficult question. I don't, I think it's difficult mainly because I'm awkward and I don't know how to ask it very well, which is one of the things that's excellent about open source is it provides opportunities to minorities, underrepresented groups who come from countries that don't have the same amount of infrastructure and the, of, the same amount of access to capital or resources. So I've been particularly lucky. I come from one of the most privileged classes of people on earth ever, period, which is like, whatever, that's how it is. You don't, and you came from India and you've now moved to Germany. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, is the goal to have people move elsewhere to <laughs> overrepresented places like Germany? Or is, is there some way to help out back in India? Do you mentor back in India, for instance? I'm just thinking about like the overarching story. And I just wonder, how does that play into it? That's a very good question. So I think there are like, I would answer it in segments. Cool. So the first thing, as you mentioned, there's a lack of infrastructure or capital. Yeah. Right. So how I started was I did my internship. I got paid for it. I was still back in India. Now, I don't know. Objectively, does $2,000 sound a lot to you? It would have at one time, but right now it doesn't because yeah. I'm a white male in tech. Yeah. yeah. So at that time, getting $2,000 a month paid off my entire semester fees. Amazing. Right? Yeah. And before that, I had been working part-time, yep. trying to pay off my college tuition. And I think it took me two years to pay off one semester. Wow. Versus three months to pay off three, three semesters. semesters. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Right. So that's and that is what happens when you channel these resources hmm. into countries with underdeveloped infrastructure. Yeah. Right. So that that's the first part. And the second part is now I moved to Berlin. Two things. It was a personal choice. Like I, I, <laughs> I actually worked this current position remotely for one year before I moved here. For one year, I worked this like remotely. Hmm. And then I was like, OK, I need to get more exposure cool right because obviously there is a limitation to how much exposure you get especially like for my field in india so i needed i moved here but again the resources do go back to india yeah right if i earn money here it goes back to my home feel like helps me support my family mm. back home and it also makes me more aware of the privilege that I now have mm. versus what I had back in India. So it makes me like, I want to help more people, not necessarily come to more developed countries, but rather know that there are many opportunities out there mm. that they can take back home. Excellent. Thank you so much. What are you looking forward to most at your current position and in the current mentorship program that you're working in, in the next like year or so? What, what's in the cooker that's really exciting? Honestly, new contributors. Cool. Yeah, because I 
fee. I believe in the power of like these programs that literally change lives. Mm. I'm here right now, 5,000 kilometers away from home because of these programs. So that's the most exciting part. You get a new intern, you get a new mentee and you know that their lives will be changed in significant ways. That's the most exciting part. Amazing. That's really exciting. Where can people learn more about your journey and your words and you online? So I'm on most social media. I think all of it as Smira Goel, S-M-E-R-A-G-O-E-L. That's my name. And they can just reach out to me wherever, right? Wherever they feel most comfortable. And we can talk about this. We can talk about Fedora, mentorship in Fedora and maybe start contributing. Awesome. Samira, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you Don't for bad. That was great. Yeah. Thank you. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. This is Richard Litauer with Sustain at Fosbeck Stage in Berlin. Super fun. Had a lot of conversations today. A few more to go. Luckily, I'm in these really way too comfortable chairs. I feel like I should have some ferns. We could just be between two ferns, you know, like <laughs> Zach Galifianakis. I'm here today with another podcaster, Dotan Horowitz. Dotan, how are you doing? Great, great. Yeah, that, these are way too comfortable. I'm it's, not sure I'm living here. No, you have to uh, host me for, uh, for a few more uh, hours. <laughs> I'm very jet lagged and I literally have almost fallen asleep at least once. So hopefully today we'll, we'll stay awake. Dotan, so we already mentioned that you are a fellow podcaster. Tell me a bit about your podcast. So uh, I've been running this podcast for uh, the past three years now. It's called Open Observability Talks. Mm. It's essentially anything about open source, DevOps, observability. That's my passion. That's my uh, domain in the past years. And I started in the pandemic when I wanted to keep in touch with the community when the in-person was no longer uh, available. So I said, ah, let's, let's check out this, uh, this medium. And I, I fell in love with podcasting. It's video casting and podcasting and live streaming together. And I'm... It's amazing. So, I feel like uh, I should do the live streaming bit. I've never done that. This is the first live podcast I've ever had. So it's very interesting for me. There's no edit button, yeah. which is really hard because <laughs> I really, normally I swear like a mother, but I can't anymore. And it's very tough, but it's working. It's yeah. working. You're doing fine so far. Great. Excellent. <laughs> so for the lay person out there, not saying this is me, not saying it's me. It's totally, what does observability mean? Observability is essentially understanding what your uh, system is doing okay. or not doing, yeah. what it should be doing. Yeah. And the way I look at it is just the uh, capability. Yeah, there's the traditional uh, definition that everyone is uh, saying that it's taken from the control theory, uh, saying that it's a measure of how well the internal state of a system is, can be inferred from, inferred from external outputs. That's like the formal definition. Cool. I'm not so thrilled about this definition. I rather just saying that observability is the capability to ask and answer questions about your system. Quote that, quote that. we should put that in the show notes. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. When we talk about open source, the main thing that we would do for observability is things like GitHub commits and contributor lists or things like logs. Which, what do you talk about when you talk about open observability? So... Observability has been, or starting with monitoring, more traditionally monitoring and now expanding to observability has yep. been dominated for many, many years by closed source vendors, AppDynamics, Dynatrace, New Relic, Datadog, you name it. And it has 
got us into a very siloed and very vendor-locked situation in which you use a proprietary agent to collect the telemetry, and that agent is provided by the vendor. So from that point on, you're locked in throughout the chain to aggregation, collection, processing, and all the way down to storing and visualization and analytics. So you had no choice. You were locked in vertically to a vendor. That's one problem. And the other problem is that most of the vendors traditionally were specialized. So some of them were APM vendors, some of them were log analytics vendors, some of them were uh, monitoring type of vendors with metrics. So if you used, which most of us do, you use logging and metrics, for instance, then you had to have a vertical stack for that, a vertical stack for that, and each one is siloed from the other. So it was very, very difficult to make them speak in the same language and get the full power of observability. When you say most of us do, the kind of open source or projects you're talking about are cloud-based web apps, right? Specifically large open source projects or large projects in general, which have something running somewhere on a server that they need to check. You're not talking about your low-level JavaScript package that other people can install. You're talking about like a service that's being run somewhere for like a company and you just need to make exactly. sure the server's up. Exactly. So it's a real production system running, I don't know, e-commerce websites exactly. or, or okay. healthcare or whatnot. Yeah. You need to monitor, for, the, for you, this is your core business. You need to monitor that it's up and running and serving and functioning and performing and everything. So that, that's the challenge. And, and not having the full power of observability by asking and answering any, any question about your system because of this lock-in, because of these silos, has been a problem for many, many years. And this is where the power of open source comes to play. And when I talk about open source, it's actually before even talking about tooling, such as Prometheus and, and Elasticsearch previously and OpenSearch and so on, it's about open standards. Mm. It's about the ability to have one unified, vendor-agnostic, standardized way of communicating what goes on in your system. And that's, that's something that is, has been revolutionizing the industry, primarily with open telemetry that I've been evangelizing on and also open metrics to some extent and, and similar initiatives. Cool. I'm realizing as, as you're speaking, almost like a 17-year-old UVM student with a lot of weed, just like, whoa, open source is huge, man. Because like, it's not just about the operating system, right? It's not just about the production level service. It's not just about the code that's being written on GitHub, which may or may not be used by either of those two systems. It's also about open standards. So there's like four different giant quadrants where open is important. And you try to focus specifically on the open telemetry, which means you have to have open standards. You have to have open hardware in order to get the open systems on top. The standards to make sure that they're being implemented correctly in those systems. And then you have to figure out how to have the telemetry itself be open source so you can know what's going on once you've implemented the standards in the open hardware. Something so like it, that, it's, right? It's less about open hardware, okay. open telemetry. It's more about standardizing, firstly, the APIs and SDKs. Got so it, what okay. used to be is that, uh, let's say you have you, you gave an example of, of a, I don't know, a Node.js JavaScript application. You needed to uh, use some sort of a, a client library to instrument your, your application. And the, 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 the Node.js, the, the JavaScript one, was not necessarily aligned with the Java one, no. nor with the .NET, whatnot. That's just where I started. That's why I mentioned it. Exactly. You don't know, so it's a very, very valid thing because as, as organizations have grown, especially with microservices, into a multi-language deployment, you can't allow for each language to behave entirely differently. So you start with the very basics of what are the semantic conventions that you employ. When you call a service 
do you call it service name service ID service underscore ID yeah. camel case or what not in, in these levels starting from the very way of, of naming and labeling that will be consistent across the system and across programming languages yeah. then defining what's the API specification and the SDK specification across programming languages and once you have that specification in the data specification once you have that in place then you can implement it in different programming languages mm. and you can implement different uh, uh, receivers and different processes and different exporters and and you can do magic but the fact that you have one unified standard specification that defines apis SDks and data and that defines the protocol and the the actual client libraries and everything else is the way that suddenly everything starts speaking the same language and this language is not dictated by any single vendor but actually by the community itself so we're talking about open standards here I'm sure you're familiar with IEEE and how they work yeah. um, when you say it's not dictated by one member of the community isn't the standard body a single member of the community that decides this is how it's going to go and who's at the table that decides what to go to the standard bodies and So first of all, just to be very accurate, it's not a standard open telemetry is not a standard per, per se. Got it. Uh, it's a specification or it has a piece that is a specification and it's a project under the CNCF. It's a, a, so it's governed by the CNCF governance and it has lots of major players in the industry, big names such oh, as so Google. So open telemetry is like, is an actual project like TM. Yes, exactly. It. It's okay, an actual cool. project under yeah. the CNCF. It's, uh, it's actually the second most active project in the CNCF. So second only to Kubernetes itself. Imagine how, how big it is. Foundation. Cloud Native Computing Foundation. Cloud Native Computing Foundation, exactly. So it's, it's a massive project that hmm. has been going on that has a piece that's uh, the specification that I was talking about. And then other pieces, which are the implementations, the Java implementation, the, the .NET, Go, so for each programming yeah. language, And also a protocol, OTLP, Open Telemetry Protocol, for transmitting, again, in, in a vendor-agnostic way, to transmit and relay and communicate telemetry data. Cool. Logs, metrics, traces. So again, you're not also siloed between the different telemetry signals. You have one unified way of communicating across the different signals. Yep. And also all the integrations with the different backends. So it doesn't, it doesn't take any stake in the backend. You can still use your own choice of backend uh, storage, visualization, whatnot. It offers a wide range of exporters and different protocols to send it to whichever backend you choose. What are the downsides? So obviously it doesn't have the maturity of uh, you know app dynamics and and their new relic and so on that's been on for for so many years. It is a relatively new project. By the way, it's uh, generally available for logs and for uh, for uh, sorry for distributed tracing and nearly GA in release candidate for metrics. Uh, logs is a bit farther behind. So obviously there's the the maturity curve of, a, of an open source project and this is something to be taken under advice secondly obviously one thing that is by a single vendor will always be very neatly tied between the agent through the processing and all the way to the backend that's the the vertical side of things but it comes with a price that I think and I see that also with many of the users in the community is too expensive to price it too costly which is uh, having to stick to that vertical solution with no way to engage. So these are the trade-offs that each organization needs to choose. But you see again and again that organizations, once open telemetry is there and it's a viable option, that they move to that. And actually, they, they put pressure on the vendors, the traditional vendors, to start supporting open telemetry, although they have out-of-the-box, very mature agents. They actually get the requests by their own users and clients to support open telemetry. So you see also the big 
monitoring and observability vendors moving to open telemetry themselves. So who pays you to talk about open telemetry so well? So uh, I, my day job is uh, at a company called Logs.io. Logs.io provides a cloud-native observability uh, platform. And the beauty is that maybe unlike all the big names that I mentioned, is that Logs.io actually takes the best of breed open source stack for observability and offers that as a managed solution. So you like OpenSearch, you like uh, OpenTelemetry, you like Prometheus, you like Jaeger, no worries. But you don't want to have the hassle of, of uh, managing, installing, handling the indexes, the, the shards, whatnot. You can have that as a managed solution. That's one. And secondly, you can have it as a unified observability solution because out there, these projects, with the exception of open telemetry, the rest are still specialized. So Jaeger is a distributed tracing solution. Open search is a log analytics solution. Prometheus specializes in metrics. But once you have that as a managed solution, you can actually have a unified observability that makes these uh, open source projects talk together. You can have one click to move between your metrics spiking suddenly to, okay, show me the, the corresponding logs or show me the, the traces that correspond to this incident. So the moving ver- horizontally between the different telemetry signals, between the different views, so to speak, of the observability becomes much more natural and holistic. I like the word holistic. And I, I'm going to ask you about that because... When I talk to CNCF projects, and I've talked to a few of them now, I always get the feeling like I'm getting pitched to. And I always get the feeling like I don't have the right stuff to get pitched to. Like I'm not running that kind of business. It's because you're, you're, you're so specific, but you're really, really useful for that specific need. You're like, if, if I'm running that sort of stack, man, I would love to have open logs that have been done by an open body that's in an open standard or an open specification. That sounds excellent to me. What I don't understand is, what's your place within the larger ecosystem of open source? I, I, do you see yourself as being useful in furthering open source sustainability by showcasing how open source can be used to work for both profit and for the good of the market as a whole? Or do you give back in a, in a deeper way towards dependencies in the open specification that you use? Or to the projects, like do they have to sign off on not using, uh, having a GPL license or something. I'm curious, like how, how you see yourself functioning within the wider open source community. Are you asking as a, as a CNCF member or are you asking me as a, as a, my own, from my own side? Because CNCF, Either. I think, actually it's, it's, I'm going to host, uh, next week, the, uh, CTOs, the CNCF uh, CTO, cool. uh, Chris. Yeah. And I'm going to ask him some of these questions as well, by Great. the way. Yeah. But my view of, uh, and I'm, I'm not a, f- a formal representative, although I am a member of the CNCF and an advocate of the CNCF, my view is that the CNCF took a conscious choice yep. not to provide well-defined stack. This is the best of breed stack. So you see, as you said, very specialized, very good at what they do, specialized solutions, point solutions. And sometimes you see even overlap and overlap between different projects under the CNCF's umbrella doing similar things. Yep. And it was a conscious decision. Unlike, by the way, I, I've been involved in uh, OpenStack and other stacks where they took a more, a clear approach to a pre- predefined recommend, recommended stack. Yep. I think the CNCF takes a, a much wider approach of let's give the option, and but leave the option to the end user to decide what's best for, uh, for him or her. So yeah. I, I think in a way it can be confusing and I definitely empathize with what you're saying. But I understand where, where the CNCF is coming from. So this is a challenge. So because the, the ecosystem is massive. The CNCF's ecosystem can be very confusing, especially for one that wants to 
take an open source strategy in, in the company, but doesn't know where to start and, and gets overwhelmed with this very famous or infamous map of the uh, CNCF project. I'm not confused. I, I, okay. I, I get, I get where, where things fit in the stack and I get that the stack is really well cared for and they're working to provide solutions all the way along the stack that use a particular methodology of working in the open, yep. which enables market reach and enables them to spread just as fast as they can to people so that they undercut competitors who are close or stopping vendor lock-in, enabling more collaboration, enabling growth. Yeah. Totally understand. That's, that's actually pretty cool. What I don't understand is how this is whether CNCF projects see themselves as part of a wider story of open source being a way of working in the commons, not just for market share, but to dedicate towards uh, having it be available to people elsewhere, or whether you see yourself similar to small projects on GitHub who don't have any funding, who are never going to be a CNCF approved, who may not even be in that space. Um, we talk a lot about open source sustainability here. We're at FOSS backstage. Yep. It's not FOSS CNCF backstage. Yeah. And I'm just always curious how you see yourself. I, I don't know. Yeah. So I think that, um, first of all, I, I, I don't like the view of projects that will never get into CNCF because I think the purpose as, as a foundation should be that any project that reaches enough critical mass to show the value should have the, the open door for that. And if you look at the sandbox, the, the way Not that... Not all the, projects will be, will be cloud-native, though. Some projects just won't be, right? Okay, so if you're talking yeah. about projects that don't map in any way to the cloud-native sphere, then, yes. yeah. But then yeah. again, you have, you have uh, collaborations. For example, I, I had in, the, uh, in my podcast uh, an episode about FinOps. Yep. And there is a very fascinating project called OpenCost that actually now joined also uh, the CNCF. But what's important <laughs> is that you say, okay, so is, is FinOps a, a CNCF thing? Yes or no? Yeah. It's, it's a good question. But yeah. the thing is that the door was open for OpenCost to, uh, to join the project. And on the other hand, and in, in a different capacity, it's also a member of the FinOps Foundation. Yep. So you get collaboration between the FinOps Foundation and the, uh, the CNCF through these sorts of initiatives. Another example is, for example, at KubeCon North America, I, uh, I spoke at the CD Summit, the Continuous Delivery Summit, hmm. about approaching observability for CI/CD use cases. Hmm. And one of the things that I was trying to pitch, both for the CDF, for the Continuous Delivery Foundation, and for the CNCF on both ends, is that actually there is a very good point to collaborate on the angle of CI/CD observability, because the CNCF can offer the observability stack and the Continuous Delivery Foundation has been working on formalizing what is a CD event, a continuous delivery event in a, in a standardization or a specification mode of work. So if we can actually adopt this specification, bring it into the CNCF and then formalize, let's say, open telemetry supporting this. So I, I think going beyond just the CNCF, I think there are lots of places to, to collaborate. And I gave examples for the FinOps Foundation, for the Continuous Delivery Foundation, it could be also for smaller projects or other types of foundations. The data aspect of uh, open data is, is also collaboration, open hardware. So lots of uh, rooms for collaborations also outside of the CNCF. Okay, I have a much more philosophical question, which I, I, I'm just going to ask. I just feel like Go it. ahead. Humanity in general continues to expand. This is a problem for our ecosystem. Okay. Edward Abbey, the desert philosopher of the 1960s and 70s wrote that growth for the sake of growth is the ideology of a cancer cell, which is a really interesting quote. And there's a whole movement right now called degrowth about trying to decouple market economies from this idea that we have to continue to grow. Okay. Do you have any opinion on whether or not open source in the cloud native space 
should continue to grow at a pace that allows companies to continue to access resources and do things, and whether or not that's healthy for the human economies in general that we live in. I think open source in this respect is a tool. It, it's a means to an end. Cool. It serves a purpose. Now, yeah. the purpose can be very, can vary. It could be commercial purposes like we do tactically with companies. It could be humanitarian purposes and, and the CNCF has been used for many humanitarian uh, goals and aims, as you know. It could be space I, survey I, I outside of that. Earth. I, I don't know that. That's great. Okay. So cool. yeah, it, it's definitely lots yeah. of that. It, lots of collaboration also about the uh, space journeys. I don't know if you heard space about is, that. Space so, is awesome. Yeah. So the way that I look at it is a means to an end. Open source does, should not proliferate for the sake of proliferating open source. It should be that we find For example, all the, all the cloud native thing has not existed 10 years ago. Yep. And the move to microservices, to uh, Kubernetes, containerized, serverless, and so on, has emerged out of the need to innovate faster. And innovation could be to uh, provide more effective crops for humanity, to feed humanity. It could be for, for uh, educating third world countries in, a, in accessible, maybe remote, and, and so on. So again, it's a means... To an end, and as long as we focus on the end and the goal, then open source, I think, is a very, very effective of reaching it much far far more effective than closed source, especially for these humanitarian causes that they're very important, but you find it very difficult to find the commercial entity to do it. But when you leave it in the hands of the community, then it spreads, and many people join the 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 common cause. If open source is a means to an end and it helps people towards a common cause of helping humanitarian efforts. Not just humanitarian, but also maybe market efforts, which may also lead towards humanitarian yeah. outcomes. What do what is open telemetry and what do the projects that you're involved in the CNCF do to help out other open source projects that may not use your system? Do you offer mentoring? Do you offer free uh, free usage of the stack? I'm curious like what what other ways do you give back to open source? So there are lots and lots of programs under the CNCF to help and to get students, to get underrepresented communities, to get involved. There's a mentorship, lots of mentorship. I, uh, I forgot the name, but a very uh, a good friend, uh, Jurassi, who's uh, now, uh, he now works at uh, Grafana Labs and he's, he moved to uh, Brazil. Uh, he's Brazilian originally and he's been uh, advocating for the, for the program, for the mentorship and has been doing miracles with that. So I think, and also for open source projects to help them grow and establish themselves to the level that they can submit and, and apply to become a sandbox project under the CNCF. So this is, I think there, there are various areas where the CNCF helps other projects. And by the way, the barriers to entry for the sandbox project in the CNCF, knowing other foundations, is rather low. It, it's not, it's, I, I think it's reachable to any project that actually brings concrete value to its, uh, to its users. So to get to the sandbox project for the CNCF, you get a lot of help and the barrier to entry is relatively low. And once you're there, you get obviously much more ecosystem and much more support. So I think these are the sorts of things that help other open source projects and other communities. And Dutton, where can people learn about your podcast? So you can find the po uh, podcast on all the popular apps, uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, and, and many others. It's also, by the way, on YouTube in a videocast format, if you really like my, uh, my TikTok, fancy right? face. Yeah. <laughs> cool. so, so you can see in, in each episode, I host uh, uh, someone from the community or an industry or an end user like uh, Meta or, or Cisco or, or Citrix or others uh, to get to share their own knowledge. So I'm there just to facilitate them to, uh, to share their knowledge. 
And it's open also for other community members. So if uh, someone from our, your listeners is also an expert, uh, subject matter expert in this domain and wants to reach out to me and uh, discuss, I'm more than happy to have more uh, community members contribute and uh, share knowledge there. And that's logz.io is your employer, correct? logz.io, that's the employer. And the uh, podcast is called Open Observability, one word, talks. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. Likewise.